Hello, everyone. Welcome to Jump In with Jumi here on BlackFactor.org. I am your host, Jumi, and today it is all about women's health. We're going to have a very candid and open conversation about our vaginal and reproductive health and conditions that disproportionately affect Black women, such as fibroids. So if you're watching today, get ready to get informed and armed with all of the information that you need to continue to improve your health down there. Before we get started, do me a favor and let me know where you're tuning in from. Are you on the East Coast? Are you on the West Coast, the Midwest, down South? Or are you tuning in from Europe? Let me know where you're coming from. And also share this broadcast because the information that you all are about to get is going to be so invaluable. So with that, let me introduce our first guest. Our first guest is a warrior for women. She has over 16 years of experience as a board certified OB-GYN and uses her passion and expertise to help others across various arenas. She is an experienced public speaker. She has a product line for intimate wellness and beauty for women with dark skin. And she is a founder and CEO of Virtual GYN. Please help me in welcoming Dr. Sin. Hello, Dr. Sin, welcome. Hello, how are you? Good, how are you? Let's bring on our second guest and we'll get right into the conversation. Sounds great. (laughs) Our second guest is coming to us all the way from a town right outside of London, England. An expert when it comes to caring for women suffering from fibroids, he is an OB-GYN, an award-winning healthcare professional, and an incredible asset to the UK National Health Service. He is a transformation agent with a vast wealth of experience in clinical care, health policy, and global health, co-authoring Nigeria's National Policy on Gender and Health. Please help me in welcoming Dr. Rotimi Jayasimi, affectionately known as Dr. J. Welcome, Dr. Jayasimi. Lovely, hello, good evening, good morning, whatever you are, nice to be with you. (laughs) Welcome, welcome. I'm so happy to have both of you all here on the show. I'm really excited about this conversation. But before we jump in, I do want to address what some viewers may be wondering about, and that is for you, Dr. J. So, you know, we've got a lot of women. This show has a viewership, like mostly women. And, you know, some people have never seen a male OB guy. And here they are seeing you, a man who will be speaking about one of the most intimate topics of women's health. So how do you as a male OB guy find empathy um, for women who are dealing with prospective reproductive and vaginal health issues? And how are you able to relate and help us? I think first and foremost, uh, anybody going into medical practice has an element of compassionate in them. You have to be compassionate. Uh, People who are not compassionate cannot care for people. Then as an OBGYN and as a professional, we are guided by regulations yeah. in terms of uh, what you can do. You don't cross professional boundaries. Uh, so it's for me, it's a job yeah. uh, and nothing more than that. Absolutely. And when it comes to, well, I'm not a woman, but <laughs> the most key thing in medical practice is communication. Yeah, for sure. Listen to what women say. They know their body. Uh, And when you listen, then you are able to help. Uh, I think one of the problems we have as doctors is time constraint. Mm -hmm. We're in a hurry and we don't listen. Uh, So for me, in my practice, I give my patients 
the time they require. And yes, I may not have walked in their path, but I understand what they're going through. That is amazing. Yes. Thank you so much for saying that. I think you've hit the nail on the head with so many points. So that's the communication, giving us time. So if you can hear us out and you understand what we're feeling, then you're more than qualified to treat us. So thank you for breaking that all down um, for us that are watching today. So let's jump right into the discussion and get a general understanding about our vaginal reproductive health. So Dr. Sin, what are some of the most common things that affect our the health of our vagina? Like, can you speak to some of the most important factors that things that we should be aware of? Well, I think the most important thing that we should be aware of, and it's something that we do every single day, but it is something that is not discussed in most families, especially in women of color, is proper vulvar and vaginal hygiene. You know, it's still taboo to talk about it. And the taboo in women of color has a lot to do with uh, societal norms that have been placed on us. And I feel that it's our job as healthcare providers, especially gynecologists, to take time out to make sure that women are truly informed on proper hygiene. Something as simple as that, because a lot of times the things that we're doing to um, aggressively clean, mm. you know, what I like to call our private face is actually harming the skin down there. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times we do more harm than good. So mm -hmm. if we can start with the basics, A, um, helping women or empowering women to be more comfortable just talking about it. Mm -hmm. So I love what, what you're doing today. Yeah, and we're talking about it. We're saying the words. Absolutely. Both, we're saying it all. Well, to an extent. <laughs> <laughs> and focusing on the basics, starting with hygiene. That's our foundation. Mm -hmm. And how often have you been to your, your gynecologist or primary care doctor and they took time out to make sure you understood what should be happening, mm -hmm. even with basic hygiene? Mm -hmm. So what is a basic hygiene? What are some things that we should, we, you've seen that people are doing that is just harmful, that we should not be doing? Because there's so much information, a lot of misinformation out there about vaginal health and cleansing and all kinds of stuff. So what are some of the basics? Where should we start? Well, I think that we should start with our daily wash, correct? Okay. And <laughs> um, <laughs> it makes the most sense. And when we're washing, what are you washing with? Mm -hmm. That's the start. Mm -hmm. And what are, what instrument are you using to wash? Mm -hmm. Okay. So uh, some women use, you know, the same soap they use on our body, they use on their intimate area. Mm -hmm. uh, some women like it super extra perfumed, all those things. Well, I try to teach my women mm -hmm. uh, how to read labels. Okay. Mm -hmm. You just cannot assume because they say fragrance-free, sulfate-free, paraffin-free, mm -hmm. that it's good for you. And sometimes something that has a small fragrance to it isn't necessarily bad. There oh. are high quality fragrances that are natural. Okay. So I teach women to flip it before they pick it, okay? Turn the bottle over, read what's on the bottle, and make an informed decision on what they're choosing to use on their intimate area. Okay, so you mentioned that, and you know that there's, I mean, we've got summers, you've got all types of different things. What about when it comes to douching? What is the, what is the yes or no about that? Is that okay? Is that improper? 
What do you, what do you say about that? What do you tell your women about that? The answer is no, no okay. douchey. Okay, no douchey, folks. No, no. That's correct, and it's it um, it's very true. It's factual okay. that the vagina is a self cleaning organ. Okay. Okay. The confusion comes about when a lot of people, men and women, they lump the phrase vagina into the vulva and the vagina. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They call the external or outside genitalia the same thing that they're calling our internal organ, right? Mm -hmm. As far as um, the female intimate area. Mm -hmm. Now, the outside, if you want to use water and only water, that's okay. <laughs> but always remember that the, the vulva mm -hmm. has the same sweat glands that are under your armpits. Okay. okay, and if you're uncomfortable cleaning your armpits with only water, I can understand why you want to use a little bit more than water yeah. when it comes to the outside. All right, mm -hmm. women who have issues with acne down there, okay, mm -hmm. those who have acne on their public face are more prone to have acne on their private face. Mm -hmm. They really should be using more than just water. Okay. All right. So that's one of the big things when it comes uh, to products. And as you said, with douching, it just does not need to happen. It doesn't okay? Need to happen. You're okay. washing away the body's natural defense system when mm -hmm. you're douching. Washing away the natural. OK, so no douching. That's not necessary. Self-cleansing or self-cleaning. It's, it's perfectly fine. So when it comes, though, to we got the feminine hygiene products and all this kind of stuff. What about how do psychological issues, pregnancy, childbirth, how does all of that affect vaginal health? It's huge. Okay. It is huge. Because the biggest problem that most women have is their inability to embrace, okay? They're what I call the private face. This is our public face, and that's the private mm -hmm. I love that. Public and face, with, private face. <laughs> yeah, and with um, a lot of issues, you know, if you go back to ancient Egyptian times or with the Mesopotamians and they celebrated, they worship female sexuality. Mm. Uh, if you look at their poems or their statues, you see such a wonderful love and appreciation for the female genitalia. Mm -hmm. Well, with time, those things change. Right. And it's hard to pinpoint exactly when it changed. Mm -hmm. But now you have this uh, stigma negative uh, stigma that is associated with the most intimate part of us, right? Mm -hmm. And women now grow up and they don't talk about it in the homes. Mm -hmm. So when they have a problem, they're uncomfortable bringing it up to mm -hmm. family members. Uh, sometimes you have mothers who give very short and terse answers. Once again, it's just all about cleaning down there. Right. If something's wrong is because you haven't been cleaning. Mm -hmm. and usually that's completely wrong. But they can't tell their daughters because they don't know. Mm. They weren't taught. They didn't know? talk about it. It's just yes. the, the silence of the topic. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for if you go back, even for African-American women, uh, women from the Caribbean, anywhere where women of color were enslaved, you know, they were in survival mode. Mm. So their bodies were not their own. They did mm. not have stewardship over their own bodies. Mm. And so they would hide the most sensual part of them. 
Mm-hmm. They would teach their daughters to cover up, mm-hmm. don't talk about it. Cleanliness is next to godliness, as if we can wash away all the things that have been done to us, right? Mm-hmm. And what that did is it allowed them unwittingly to wrap their daughters, their mm-hmm. all the women in their community in a cloak of ignorance and shame, mm. right? And so now we need to remove the shame and, have and we need to stomp down the ignorance. And the only way we can do that is getting women comfortable to talk about their intimate area and educating them on what's normal, what's abnormal, and when they need to come to see someone like us. Well, okay. So you've hit on two things that I want to get into. Okay. So, <laughs> Dr. J and Dr. Sin, y'all about to give us some real facts real quick, okay? So what is normal and what's abnormal? Let's talk first and foremost about discharge and smell. What is healthy? What is unhealthy? What is a natural smell? What is an unnatural smell? Dr. J, let's start with you. You Tell us what's healthy about discharge and what's unhealthy about discharge. Uh, I think the starting point I'm going to say is this. There's no human being, uh, well, most human beings, babies, have come through the passage, the vagina. Mm-hmm. Now, if that were a dirty canal, mm. then we wouldn't have come out through that place. Uh, the only time a baby will have problems is if there is an infection that's gone undetected. And that's where you come in. What's a normal discharge and what's an abnormal discharge? Mm-hmm. It's normal to have a discharge. Okay. At times it's colorless, no odor, no associated itching, mm-hmm. and that's normal. And during the mid cycle, around day 14 of a 28 day cycle, you've got cervical mucus being produced. And again, if you see that, again, that's normal. And then during sexual intimacy, mm-hmm. uh, women do produce some discharge. If it's non odorous, no odor no itching, then that's okay. Mm-hmm. The problem is when you have an odor, when it's smelly down below, or when you have a yellowish abnormal color uh, discharge, then you will know that there's something uh, going wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the common ones is the uh, what we call the vaginosis. Mm. And usually women come saying they can smell something like a fish. Mm. Uh, uh, that's the odor. It's a typical description. When they say well, there's something smelly down below, mm-hmm. uh, then you're thinking, could this be uh, vaginal vaginosis or bacterial vaginosis? Uh, and there are other causes of discharge there. A thrush, a candida. Uh, if, for example, I mean, I, I like what Dr. Sin said, uh, the vagina is a clean place. And the reason why douching and using soap and if you use that it alters the ph within our system just like you said the armpits you've got uh, you've got various types of uh, bacteria Mm -hmm. all living in harmony so one doesn't get the upper hand over the other Mm -hmm. and it's the same in the vagina but when you're on antibiotics for example you could develop thrush and another more serious aspect of vaginal discharge 
is the sexually transmitted infection. Mm -hmm. uh, the chlamydia, the gonorrhea uh, are, are the common ones. And mm -hmm. uh, this is when you have abnormal discharge. Okay. But one area that I also mentioned, more so for the younger ones and older ones, mm -hmm. uh, it, it, you, you will find it surprising that some ladies who use tampons forget that it's there. And then they come to their OBGYN saying, oh, there's something smelly here. It's awful. Oh. And uh, when the OBGYN does an examination, they find a tampon inside there. And it's like, oh. Oh. Yeah, there's. Am, am I not right, Dr. Sim? Oh, God. You are correct. And you would be surprised how often that happens. Yeah. So it's, that's really the only time that they come. But before that, okay, so before we get to that point, what are some moments that an individual needs to come and see an OB-GYN if they're seeing the discharge and it doesn't look normal, if they're feeling the smells or they're smelling it and it doesn't seem normal? Dr. Sillen, what do you advise for like, okay, it's time to call your OB-GYN? Well, anything, any deviation from normality, mm -hmm. uh, don't wait until too late. Because when you wait, then you can have Ascend it, it could be an infection, mm. and that could spread, it could go up into the womb, into the fallopian tubes, and damage the tubes. So, my advice to women, ladies, young girls, anything uh, that's a deviation from normal, uh, please see your VGYN. And mm. one other thing, uh, Dr. Sin mentioned uh, pimples. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm sure we'll go into it, and I will let her address it. Uh, <laughs> it's more so shaving uh, of that area, because when you shave, uh, there's a tendency you could develop folliculitis, uh, ingrowing hair, and that causes a lot of infection mm. in that area. So let's get right into that, because listen, summertime is around the corner, and bikini mm. lines are going to be all kinds of exposed, <laughs> you know. And so what is the best way to feel groomed? Like does a nicely groomed vagina equate to a cleaner one, the bikini area? What are the rules around that to making sure that we're not setting us up, self up while we're trying to be cute? That <laughs> <laughs> doesn't, yeah. All right, so the, there's nothing wrong with hair down there. The hair down there was created for a reason, mm -hmm. all right? And anytime we choose to remove the hair, we are taking risk. I'm not telling women not to do it, but they need to be aware that they are taking risk. And I feel that it's, it's my charge to make sure that you know all of your options when it comes to hair removal and that you can do it in the safest way possible. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, if you choose to remove the hair, that you're doing what you need to do when it comes to maintaining the skin down there, right? Mm -hmm. You're exposing the skin. So you can't do the same thing you were doing when you had what I like to call a full garden, right? <laughs> now you have an arid garden. So we need to treat it a little bit different. Got a desert garden. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so if you, shaving is probably the worst that you can okay. do, the worst method uh, as far as the health of the skin with removing the hair down there. Um, secondly, to go up one stage better would be waxing. Okay. okay. A little bit better than waxing would be sugaring. 
if you hadn't heard of sugaring, it's a it's a technique of hair removal that's been done since the ancient Egyptian times. Okay, okay. and they take a um, mixture of sugar, water, lemon, and sometimes different essential oils, and they make it into a ball. Okay, and they apply that sugar to the hairs. And they pull it off the same way they do waxing, right? But it's a little bit better than waxing because of the application technique. And sugar is a natural exfoliator. Got it. So it's going to help to remove the dead skins and things of that nature down there. Okay. Um, the next best thing, a little bit higher than sugaring, would be a depilatory cream. Mm-hmm. Right? Like nair or something like that. Yeah, I mean, those products, not to speak negatively of them, I'll just speak of my personal experience. How about that? Yes. They didn't work for me. You know, uh, my hair is thick and it's more coarse and those products were not made with me in mind. I think that's very common for a lot of women watching today because, yes, our hair is is Mm -hmm. coarser than... Right. That's why I formulated a hair removal cream Okay. For the skin down there that is strong enough for coarse hair, but safe enough for the private face. Okay. You know, because that was my pain point and I needed something for me. Right. <laughs> so um, that would be the next thing that's better. And then, of course, there is um, phototherapy. So laser hair removal. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. And if you find someone who is very good with laser hair removal, and who is used to working on your skin type. Right. Okay. Then um, you can also have additional treatments, even while you're having the, it's usually like three, somewhere in between three to five treatments to have your hair removed. Mm-hmm. But you can also do treatments that actually uh, promote regeneration of the skin. And so you have healthy, glowing skin mm-hmm. wherever you're choosing to remove the hair. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there's a lot of different options. Which one is most cost effective? Because let's be real, a lot of these things, our hairs grow back like this. And you can't do the same thing every single day, week. I mean, obviously shaving is a lot quicker, a lot less expensive, but it's also obviously on the lowest here. So when it comes to cost, but being most effective and longer, what do you suggest with that? Well, cost and most effective, you probably would do well with a depilatory cream because that one bottle lasts for quite some time. Mm-hmm. Um, but if it in, in weighing the, the pros and cons, uh, but hair removal cream, you can find, I mean, um, laser hair removal, you can find some good deals sometimes, okay. but it's very, very important to make sure that you find someone that is used to working on your skin type. For sure. For sure. Yeah. And I think that's what a lot of us struggle with because the la- if you get the wrong laser, you'll burn. And then yes. you defeated the entire pur- purpose of yes. removing your hair in places that you want a uh, removal at. So thank right. you for going through all of that. So let's continue on with these myths that we want to bust about the okay. um, vagina. So I've heard a lot of different things when it comes to how people treat what's happening down there. Pineapple, coconut oil, garlic. Please help us understand what is going on with all of this. <laughs> Let's start with coconut oil. What is the deal with coconut oil? And why do women use it in and around their vagina? Dr. J, do you want me to talk? <laughs> I don't I don't want to talk too much because I can talk all day. I love talking about the private thing. So. <laughs> that, 
Yeah, did you have, have you heard about that, Dr. J? Uh, not about coconut oil. Uh, I haven't got that experience. <laughs> uh, and, I, and, and like you said, uh, ladies tend not to talk about these things. Uh, right. So they won't, it's not something you talk over the dinner table <laughs> or after dinner, uh, not at all. So right. perhaps between ladies, uh, you probably will know my about that. So it would be interesting uh, to I mean, hear about I this. I hadn't heard of, I read about it and I was like, coconut, that just seems real messy. Coconut oil is great though. It's really? a wonderful natural moisturizer, okay. right? And uh, it's okay to use as a moisturizer. And some women even use it, not way up in the vagina, but at okay. least at the opening as a lubricant. Okay, with sex. And I commonly tell my women uh, going through menopause or who've been through menopause and they don't want to use any hormonal treatments down there mm -hmm. to try coconut oil. Wow. Okay. It's amazing how well it works. You also mentioned pineapples, right? Yes. Pineapple making uh, the vagina smell better. Is that a thing? <laughs> we could talk about the smell down there. Okay. <laughs> The smell down there is real. It mm -hmm. is what it is, right? Yeah. We all have a scent. That's our scent. Mm -hmm. And naturally, your private face is not going to smell like roses. Mm -hmm. Okay? All right, ladies. Um, <laughs> and there are things that can impact the smell down there. Mm -hmm. Number one, what we eat. Okay. Okay? Um, if, if you're super concerned about your smell for this weekend... I would highly recommend for maybe two days and definitely date night, stay away from what I like to call the stinky veggies. Stinky veggies. Okay. Tell us what it is. They're great veggies. They're, they're wonderful for our health, but, but they can smell this. Yeah, like asparagus. Okay. Like oh, garlic. Right. I heard yeah. that. Okay. Mm -hmm. okay. Stay away from that when you know. You're super concerned about the smell down there. Okay, so no okay. asparagus on date night, no garlic on date night, or the couple days before. What's another stinky vegetable? So, Sorry, to all the nutritionists. We're just trying to, you know. <laughs> so just so you know, and um, many of us are guilty of this. We don't even think about it, but alcohol, mm. right? Okay, alcohol is going to do what? What happens when you're drinking a lot? You know, you had a few glasses, you end up going to the restroom a lot, right? Mm -hmm. So it kind of dehydrates us. And when we're dehydrated, the smells down there are concentrated. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. So always keep that in mind. Some of our spices, okay, the really strong smelling spices, if you can smell it in your urine, when you go to the restroom, you know how some stuff you eat and later you go to the restroom, you can kind of smell it in your urine. Yeah. That's your litmus test. If you can smell it in your urine, it is affecting the smell of your vagina. Does that have, does that correlate with if you, you know, taking a shower at one point and then a few hours later smelling, having odor or what is going on there when it comes to odors? Down so there? that doesn't correlate with okay. hydration. Okay. Normally, what that means is you got something going on on the inside and you need to come see someone like me or Dr. J. Okay. okay. Um, usually women who have bacterial vaginosis, that is their chief complaint. 
You know, I just got out of the shower and by the time I get in the car to head to work, it's like I can smell myself. I had this smell that is just not right. Or maybe during the day they don't smell it, but when they have relations with their partner, the smell becomes more pronounced. That means that there's something going on on the inside. And once again, bacterial vaginosis is is super common. And Mm -hmm. that's usually the complaint that women come to see me and, and present. Okay. That's, that's really interesting. That's good to know. And I feel like that there's probably women watching that like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Now I know what I need to do. It's not about finding another wash. It's not about taking another shower. It's like, literally, this is when you come and see a doctor. Are there pro, cause I've heard of probiotics and pills and pro- vaginal pills and all that kind of stuff. Is that helpful for bacterial vaginosis? So, <laughs> <laughs> I don't want, number one, do not put anything in your vagina. All right. Okay. Unless myself, Dr. J, or someone likes us, write you a prescription. Okay. okay? Don't put it in your vagina. Okay. Um, These eggs and things of that nature that you can find online and, you know, they say this and that, you really have no idea what they're made of. Okay. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that's just not recommended. And if you're trying to treat a smell, you really need to be eva- evaluated because you likely have an infection mm. that requires antibiotics. Okay. Okay. And there are things that we can do to help prevent bacterial vaginosis. Mm-hmm. Okay. You mentioned probiotics. Right. I do feel that gut health equals vaginal health. Okay. That's okay. good to know. Yeah, yes. that's very good to know. Yeah. Yes. Gut health equals vaginal health. So it's important to add your probiotics into your diet. Don't go putting it in the vagina. <laughs> add it to your diet. I have a smoothie. I have a book that will be coming out. Um, our our um, virtual um, date for release is the very end of July. Okay. And um, in my book, I have a smoothie. It's called the Private Face Smoothie. I just and recommend for women to, to, yeah, for a meal replacement in the mornings, maybe, you know, three times a week, something of that nature. It includes pineapples. Okay. <laughs> and uh, it really promotes vaginal health. Okay. So one thing I do want to make sure we talk about, because I think it's a very, um, it's a incredibly intimate. A lot of women do experience it and it's hard to talk about. And, but we're going to talk about it here. So vaginal dryness, you know, it's an uncomfortable topic, but a lot of women experience it. Right. What is it? When does it occur? Why does it occur? And what can women do about it? Dr. J, do you want to jump in and, and tell us a little bit about that in your experience? Uh, yes, I, I think by the time a woman is complaining of, uh, vaginal dryness, uh, they probably are engaging in intimacy or perhaps trying uh, to put in a, a tampon. Uh, I think vaginal dryness at intimacy, um, men are always in a hurry. Uh, they mm. want to get in there. Uh, no, that's not the right way to go about it. Foreplay uh, is very important. Uh, you have to get the woman aroused. And when you do that, when you successfully do that, then the vagina is lubricated. There is secretions there. 
Right. And in doing that, then you don't get that dryness. Um, so if you're not prepared, if you're not excited, if you've not been aroused mm -hmm. and your partner just wants it, uh, that, that can be a problem. Mm -hmm. uh, and what I tell people is put on Barry White, turn down the loads, <laughs> petals and the petals all over the place, set the scene and uh, then go for it. Uh, but no, don't be in a hurry. Uh, mm -hmm. When you're in a hurry, then that can be a problem. Mm -hmm. uh, then the other time people can also have dryness is at the menopause. Mm -hmm. After people have stopped having periods, 12 months of not having a period, or even the months proceeding to that, uh, because of the reduction in estrogen levels, uh, the vagina is dry, it's... Uh, in medical terms, you say it's atrophic, that is, is shrinking, and that can cause uh, vaginal dryness as well as pain. Uh, basically, those are the things that can cause vaginal uh, dryness. Uh, I mean, no lady or girl who is not sexually active will say, oh, my vagina is dry. No, it, it doesn't happen that way. The, okay. the time you have people complaining of dryness is during intimacy or perhaps when you put it in the tampon and then, like I just said, after the menopause uh, when people want to be intimate. Are there any other conditions that, really, that can cause dryness? I couldn't hear your question. Can you say that again? Mm -hmm. Are there other conditions that can cause dryness, stress, any mental health conditions, anything that we're going through in our body or yeah, that could cause that? Well, I would like to add to um, causes. Um, you have to be careful with some of the medications that you're taking. Mm -hmm. Antihistamines can cause vaginal dryness, okay? And a lot of women are unaware of that. So if you're experiencing vaginal dryness and you're like, hey, I'm not going through menopause, my estrogen level should be fine, you may want to check your medications. Some birth control options mm. can um, cause a little bit of vaginal dryness. Some blood pressure medication like uh, the beta blockers, women can experience vaginal dryness. Mm. So it's very important to, um, if, you're, if you have anything going on that's out of the norm mm -hmm. and, you, and you know you're not going through the change, right? Then uh, seek care, go in to be seen or at least call. Nowadays you can email or text your providers and just let them know what's happening. Okay. Okay. So it's like, just check in with your body. Do yes. you know how they say, you know, see a dentist every six months, see somebody else every few months. Is there that kind of rule for seeing an OB guy? Oh yeah. We want to see you every year. Okay. okay. Some women have to see us more frequently depending mm -hmm. on um, the conditions they may have, but in general, you need to be seen every year, even if you're not due for your pap smear. Mm -hmm. You know, all these guidelines have changed for pap smears. And I'm like, oh, I'm not due for another three years, another five years. You still need to see us. Mm -hmm. okay? okay. Even if you've gone through the change, even if you're at that point where you phased out of having pap smears, we still need to see you once a year. Someone needs to put their hands on you. They need to fill your ovaries and make sure they're not enlarged. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's why ovarian cancer is called the silent killer mm. because the majority of women are diagnosed 
in a very late stage, mm. you know, once they become symptomatic. However, if you're coming in and we're able to examine you and we can say, ah, that ovary feels a little larger than what it should be, it allows us an opportunity to do additional testing. Okay. So you've talked a lot about, we both have talked a lot about the change, right? Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about that because I've seen some people asking some questions about perimenopause, menopause, and then we talked about vaginal dryness and how that can, um, that can be caused by this change. So first of all, let's start there. What are recommendations for women that are going through menopause that might be about to go through menopause when it comes to vaginal dryness? What do you recommend for them to do? Aside from, in addition to coming to see you, of course, what else is there? What else can they do? Because it is, I'm sure, very emotional, very psychologically traumatizing. What can they do? It's all about being proactive. All right. Okay. And you want to prevent tears. All right. You don't want to start using uh, ointments and things of that nature to treat tears. Mm -hmm. We want to prevent tears. So if you're starting to notice just even a little bit of vaginal dryness and maybe it's not all the time, I highly recommend a using a daily moisturizer. Okay. Like coconut oil. Like coconut oil. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> With the coconut oil, you can go to your local grocery store, to the baking goods area, get you a small bottle of coconut oil. Um, do not keep it in the kitchen. I recommend that you keep it in your personal bathroom under the counter. Just a little finger whip of it. Okay. And you just want to put it in, in the opening of the vagina. Okay. The vestibule. Mm -hmm. Um <laughs> For a while, do it nightly for about a week. After that, maybe three times a week. But with sex, be always think of prevention, okay? Mm -hmm. And go ahead and just put a little bit on if you think you may have relations. Okay. If you're noticing a little bit more dryness um, with intercourse, go ahead and start using lubricants. Okay. All right? It's perfectly okay. We want to prevent the problem. A moisturizer is different than a lubricant, all right? The moisturizers are to, to keep the vagina moist on a regular day, right. right? Just like moisturizer on your face, mm -hmm. right? Lubricants are for you when you're having sex. Mm -hmm. So right. there's a difference. Lubricant, moisturizer, but all helpful for vaginal dryness when you're experiencing it. That combination right. will help. Right. And don't stop having sex, Okay. Women who are sexually active as they go through the change and when they cross over that finish line, if they remain sexually active, they actually have um, less symptoms uh, related to vaginal dryness. Oh, okay. So, Dr. J, once you jump in here, I know that, I mean, you've given us the grown folk version of like vaginal, <laughs> <laughs> you know, making sure, it, keeping it um, moist down there. But what, are, what else do you suggest for women that are approaching menopause? And it's not something to look forward to, but it's clearly something that can't be prevented. So what is your what is your message to them about it, how to treat it, what they can do? Yeah, I, I was going to say something about uh, um, lubricants. Mm -hmm. Lubricants are water-based uh, preparations. Uh, they don't contain chemicals. And that's why Dr. Sina said that is what you should use. It hasn't got chemicals. Right. Um, now, we have herbal therapy as well that people take uh, to address symptoms of the menopause or okay. premenopause. 
And these include things like uh, St. John's Wort. Uh, how effective they are, some people will go by it, some people will say it's not worth for them, uh, but it's worth trying if you do not want to use uh, medication. But when it comes to therapy, that is orthodox therapy, then you're talking of hormone replacement therapy. Uh, because what a woman has lost, why you have dryness down below is the uh, est the ovaries no longer produce enough estrogens. Mm. And then you want uh, to replace the estrogen. Mm -hmm. um, and if you still have your womb, then it has to be the combined form of estrogen or hormone replacement therapy. Okay. Uh, a very controversial area uh, because of the potential risk of increase in breast cancer risk. Uh, but what we tend to advise women is this, uh, use it for a short time rather than long-term use. But there are some women who swear by it and for as long as they have their self-breast examination, they have their mammograms and they're happy on the hormone replacement therapy mm -hmm. and they know the risk involved. I've seen women in their 80s uh, taking hormone replacement therapy. Now, the other aspect is the local preparation, uh, which is uh, like a tablet, like a pellet. Mm -hmm. uh, you, it's got an introducer like a pen, and you just uh, deposit it in the vagina. That's a local topical estrogen preparation. Is that uh, how often do they have to take? Is that regular? Is that a one-time thing? What is that? Uh, you, you start once, twice a week, and you tailor it down. Uh, it's just to make the skin of the vagina uh, as subtle as possible. Uh, so it's not something you take every day. It's not something you take just before sex, no. Uh, there, there is a dosing regimen for it. Uh, once, twice a week, and then you till all that down. And I think you till all it down just because of the potential risk of breast cancer. Mm -hmm. But like we said, it's topical. When I say topical, it's local to the vagina, and the concentration in the blood system isn't that high. Uh, the French, I know we spoke about douching. I won't go that, that <laughs> but I think the French believe in it, but we'll leave it as that. Uh, for their own hormone replacement therapy, they believe in the patches, mm -hmm. uh, like the cigarette patches. And again, that contains estrogens, and that helps. Uh, with the vaginal dryness. Okay. So hormone replacement therapy, uh, local lubricants, they do help. Okay, so we know what we need to do when it comes to the you know, vaginal dryness. You've talked a lot about just vaginal health from the basics to the little more specifics to the you know, evenings for a raid, date night, what we gotta do, all, we've covered that all. And so I think that's very important to give us this baseline, but I do wanna make sure that we talk about, you know, you've mentioned making sure we come and see you every single year to prevent, you know, these cancers. You've talked about ovarian cancer being silent killer. There are a lot of conditions that disproportionately affect black women. And I don't wanna stop this conversation today without really touching on one of the most important ones and that's fibroids. So, Dr. Jay, I do want to start with you with talking about like what is it, what are fibroids, and why are we as Black women more susceptible to getting them? Now, uh, fibroids are 
simple, what we call benign growths within the muscle mm -hmm. of the womb. Uh, we say more than 50% of women will have fibroids at some point in time okay. of varying sizes and in different positions. Mm -hmm. But what the cause of fibroids are, are still very much unknown. And that's perhaps because there hasn't been a lot of research into it. We do know... Hold on. With it affecting so many people, why has there not been the research there? Well, that's where I was going into. <laughs> when you talk about social determinants of health, yeah. I've just been watching a program of how Blacks were treated many, many years ago in Britain. Mm -hmm. uh, when you were Black, you were considered to have a lower IQ. Uh, if you look at the death rate of mothers, even in America, in the black population, it's excessive. Mm -hmm. So uh, we are black and not much research is going into that area. Yeah. But I'm sure there'll come a time when uh, it, it will happen. happen. Is it is it a collagen system? I don't know. Mm -hmm. Black people are prone to developing keloids. You know what keloids are? Yeah, yes. This, yeah. yeah. Uh, so has it got something to do with our collagen system, our tissue system? Uh, we do not know. Okay. But one of the things we know is that it's common. Uh, it runs in families. Okay, so it's genetic. Uh, yes. And again, we believe it's estrogen dependent. Okay. So could it be what we eat? Could it be the food we eat? Uh, that contains some degree of estrogen, phytoestrogens. But like we said, in medical practice, we don't know what causes it. As a doctor and not a nutritionist, we just treat it if it's symptomatic. But in, in a number of women, it doesn't cause any problem. Right. But in some women, it causes heavy periods, painful periods, back pain, lower abdominal pain, Mm -hmm. uh, and that's when you, or, or even difficulty falling pregnant, uh, can be a problem with fibroids. So, uh, in addition to um, genetics, who yes. is at risk? Like age, weight. I mean, you talked a little about the environment. Is it specific to a certain type of person at a certain time period, or can it just affect any woman of reproductive age at any given time? Uh, what, what, one of the things we used to say was the best time for a woman to have children. The best time of your reproductive life is between the age of 18 and 28. Okay. Uh, but we now know that with women going into employment, uh, they defer uh, child bearing yeah. until their 30s and stuff like that. And this is probably an old wife's tale that, uh, the womb is pining to carry a baby, but since you're not having a pregnancy, then he decides to carry a fibroid. It's an old wife's tale. Oh God! And, but 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 I think why people say that huh. is that fibroids are common or commoner in people who haven't had children. Uh, oh. Yes, and so when we say nulliparous people, uh, they haven't had children, then you do find fibroids. But that's not to say that even women who've had children don't have fibroids. They do have fibroids. Right. And it, it could be your first pregnancy that the sonographer says, oh, 
I can say fibroid here. And you're saying, really? And that might be the very first time uh, mm -hmm. that somebody tells you that you've got fibroids. Mm -hmm. But it is common. Uh, it's manageable. It's treatable. But again, it can be debilitating. For sure. And before we progress, because I might forget this, <laughs> uh, people tend not to know that if you have a huge fibroid, especially the one towards the back, it can press on the renal system, mm. uh, the tube that brings urine down from the kidneys to the bladder. And if that happens, it's a silent process. Gradually, the tubes enlarge, the kidneys enlarge, and if you're not careful, it damages the kidneys. Mm. So uh, so Mm -hmm. now, I'm just saying it's very important that if there's anything. So, Dr. Sin, like, tell me, how do you know when you need to see it? Because we don't want it to get to that point where it's damaging the renal system, messing up every other thing going on in our bodies. But how do we know what is happening and when we need to come and see a doctor? What has been your experience with some of your patients when it comes to fibroids? Well, I tell all women, if you're symptomatic, period, okay? So if you're having pain, just on a, a given day, if your periods are becoming very painful, mm -hmm. uh, it's affecting your quality of life. If you um, are having issues, even with urination, issues with emptying your bladder or increased frequency of urination. If you're having problems with you, your bowel movement, definitely if you notice that your belly is starting to extend and get a little bigger. If you're having um, problems with bleeding, if you're bleeding heavily, okay? Unfortunately, a lot of women of color feel as if you need a, it needs to be a, a blood bath before they would consider that bleeding heavy, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want you to come and see me if you are soaking a pad in less than three and a half hours, Whew. okay? I okay. want to see you. I don't want to say, oh, if you're soaking a pad an hour, go to the ER. Yeah, go to the ER, but you need to see someone before you're at that critical stage, right? right? So um, the quicker that you come in to be evaluated, the quicker we can assess what's going on, help you with management, and then give you some tools that you can do on your own, that you can do at home, to help with fibroids, okay? Okay, let's touch on that though. What are those tools? Because I know most times you think, okay, we just have to go in the doctor's office, get, the get surgery or something. Mm -hmm. What are things that we can do at home to manage? And ultimately, can we prevent fibroids from coming? Prevention is a strong word. Okay. Okay, uh, we, we haven't figured that out, but there are things we can do as far as management. And uh, it's important for me to make sure that women can arm their cells with information mm -hmm. so that they can advocate for their cells in whatever doctor office that they may walk into. So I created some free videos. Uh, it's called, it's at fightthefibroids.com. Okay. And it goes over um, some of the diets, you know, things that you can do holistically to help with fibroids. Okay. It gives you basic um, information about fibroids in reference to just even what they are and treatment options, because it's important for women to know the majority of the time hysterectomy is not necessary, all right? Mm -hmm. So things that women can do at home. Some studies have shown that 
obesity increases your risk for fibroids, at least the burden of your fibroids, okay? So if you can get your weight down, it may help with your fibroids. Okay. The second risk that I would like to discuss is um, vitamin D. Okay. And I don't understand why they don't talk about this enough. Studies have shown that low vitamin D, okay, increases your risk for fibroids. Wow. So who likely has low vitamin D? People of color, right? <laughs> yes. yes. Who likely is suffering from fibroids? Women of color. Right. So please, please, please make sure that your that your provider is checking your vitamin D level wow. so you can know the right amount of supplementation you need to be taking. Mm. Mm. Wow. That is like I actually had never heard that before. So that is incredibly insightful. Thank you for bringing it up. Well, I have more <laughs> tips that are completely free. Just go to fightthefibroids.com mm -hmm. and um, let's just arm women with information. Absolutely. So you did mention something that I think that a lot of us have questions about when it comes to fibroids. And it's like, despite the fact that there's so many minimally invasive ways to treat it, and now that you've told us self-care ways to treat it, why are Black women having hysterectomies at such a high rate compared to everybody else? And what can be done about that? How can we reverse that? Because that is a major problem considering it's all happening in women of reproductive ages. What can we do about that? Right. Um, once again, education should be our weapon. Yes. Okay. Education should be our weapon because when we arm women with information, they are able to walk into any doctor's office and truly advocate for themselves. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And granted, Women of color are found to have uh, more burden of fibroids, mm -hmm. you know, bigger fibroids, more symptomatic, presenting at an earlier age than our white counterparts. Okay. So yeah. in general, that has something to do with it. But it's been many studies done and where they factored all of those things out. Right. And we were still more likely not just to have hysterectomy, but mm -hmm. even to have an open hysterectomy. All mm -hmm. right. Where, where we're doing the cut on the belly, mm -hmm. even after factoring out being big, you know, uh, previous surgeries, all of those things. And it really has to do with um, the historical wrongs that have yet to be righted. Mm hmm. And unfortunately, there's so much um, unconscious bias that you have very well-meaning uh, providers mm -hmm. who don't even realize what it is that they're doing, right? Yeah. So yeah. the more that we have dialogue about this, it improves awareness Yes, where people can start checking themselves. Because mm -hmm. for a lot of them, it's not intentional. No, no. It's just lack of knowledge. It's lack of support from the it's system. Conditioning, right? It's just years, centuries almost now of conditioning. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. And so that's really where we need to start. So what do you say to women who might be feeling, you know, just 
completely helpless and just feeling like they can't control it. It's just continuing to come back because it's possible that after you've had it removed, after you've had gone through the whole entire process with fibroids, they'll come right back. What right. do you say to women who feel like, oh my goodness, I'm never going to beat this condition? How can we make them feel better that it's not, it's not a death sentence? You it's know? not a death sentence. I recommend that they find good support systems, you know, find organizations that focus on fibroids. Uh, if they feel like they're not being heard in reference to their provider, find another doctor. Find another one. Yeah, I'm right. seeing in the chat somebody said one doctor said hysterectomy, another one said not necessary. Fine. Right. Have multiple ones. And yeah. it's okay to get a second opinion. Okay. It's perfectly okay to get a second opinion. I, um, I offer those in reference to fibroids. And uh, it's amazing sometimes the stories that I hear. But most importantly, I want women to focus on the holistic approaches. You know, try uh, products that you know that are anti-inflammatory, okay, to help with your symptoms, such as turmeric, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, so add some turmeric to your diet. Make sure you're getting your weight down. Make sure you're taking calcium and vitamin D. All those things, they truly help. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Dr. J, what, what do you have to say to women who just feel like, oh, goodness, it's never gonna get any better? What is what is your recommendation to them? Well, Dr. Sin has said it, education. Yeah. And you will remember that at the beginning, uh, I said, when you said, I said, man, how do I emphasize? Yeah. I think what I said was you listen to the patient. Yeah. Give them time. And as surgeons or OBGYN, we shouldn't be trigger happy. Uh, I think the difference between uh, Dr. Sin and I, uh, she practices uh, in the United States. I'm in the United Kingdom. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't get paid by HMOs or all these insurance companies uh, because healthcare is free in the United Kingdom. And we are guided by guidelines and protocols. So we just do not jump into surgery. Right. Now, if a woman is bleeding heavily, there are simple things you can do uh, in terms of reducing, uh, uh, getting a reduction uh, in the amount of blood loss. You're not going to cure the woman, but mm -hmm. the bleeding will become acceptable. Uh, things like... Uh, methionamic acid, uh, tranexamic acid. These are tablets you take uh, during your periods and it reduces the amount of blood flow that you mm -hmm. get. And if that works well for you, that is what you need. Okay. Now, hyster hysterectomy is the last resort. You yeah. will not offer a hysterectomy to a woman who hasn't had children mm. unless it's life-threatening. No, you wouldn't. Uh, there are other methods, myomectomy, where you pluck out the fibroids. And you're now talking of fibroids that are causing problems. People see you and say, oh, when is your baby due? Mm, and you say, yeah. oh, I'm not pregnant. I've got fibroids. Yeah. Then you can do a myomectomy to preserve the uterus. Uh, you also have ultrasound um, therapy, high-focus ultrasound beams to destroy the fibroids. Mm -hmm. You've also got uterine 
artery embolization. So many options, except for opposed to a hysterectomy. So ladies, please do not let your doctor say hysterectomy. There's so many options Mm -hmm. if it's not life-threatening. That's correct. Yes. So read about it. Equip yourself. And when when you're going to see your OBGYN, take somebody with you. Because you see, we as doctors, we give you so much information. It goes in here and comes out there. (laughs) But whoever goes with you, at least they will be able to tell you what was said. Mm. And another thing we encourage in hospitals is the use of patient information leaflets Mm -hmm. as well as support groups. Uh, they, 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 they do help. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we will get there and uh, we, we don't like to see women suffer or be in misery. Uh, so that's why we are here. Yes. And you all being here today on Jumping with Jimmy has been just, I'm so grateful for you all because I know the information that you have provided is hard to have a conversation of this length with an OBGYN that is going to give such detailed and heartfelt information about all these different conditions that affect women at across the age span, you know? So thank you so much for your transparency on today's show. I know that the viewers have found it incredibly helpful. I know that the people watching the replay or that will watch a replay are gonna find it very helpful and beneficial. And I'm really hoping that everybody got their questions answered. Even if you didn't put it in the comments that maybe you had a question in your head and you don't wanna answer or ask it, but you got it answered. So, you know, as with everything with our health, you know, their vaginal health can be improved, but you still have to be your own advocate, see the doctors, have the conversations, ask the tough questions, and just know that while some things might not be able to be preventable, like Dr. Sin says, prevention is a tough word with some of these things, but there is a lot that you can do at home on a daily basis to make sure that you are having the optimal health that you can. So thank you all for being an amazing audience this week. Very grateful for you all. And I will see you all again next week at 2 p.m. Pacific time for another wonderful episode of Jumping with Jumi. Thank you, everyone. Bye. Thank you for having me. <laughs> thank you so 